0: Well, welcome to the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is the 2021 summer interlude between seasons. This summer, we're sharing brand new lectures by Joe Boot from a series produced in partnership with Answers in Genesis called Creation, Cross, and Culture. Catch a new episode each week, and we'll be back in September with a new season of the podcast for cultural reformation. Of Death and the Law of Life, Part One. Scripture says to the law and to the testimony if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Isaiah 8 Whether through mainstream multimedia news, movies, school and university classrooms, or the local coffee shop. There is no escaping the green movements all pervasive messaging. We have all been exposed to and influenced by it in some measure. The message is some form of the belief that mankind is a parasitic menace to the planet. Among its more frightening exponents, radical environmentalist Paul Watson of the Sea Shepherd Institute calls human beings the AIDS of the Earth. He writes, "'Curing a body of cancer requires a radical and invasive therapy, and therefore curing the biosphere of the human virus will also require a radical and invasive approach." Tragically, throughout the Green Movement, many are promoting a culture of death in the name of life, health, and eco-justice. Whereas the God of Scripture says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and tells us that children are a heritage and reward from him. This new religion tells us that children are a threat to planetary life, and, large families a disease. John Gilbo, co-chairman of Optimum Population Trust and Emeritus Professor of Family Planning at University College in London, told the UK Sunday Times that, quote, the greatest thing anyone in Britain could do to help the future of the planet would be to have one less child. As a result, abortion and other population control measures are seen as the most cost-effective carbon offsetting programs available to individuals and nations. Familial and cultural suicide in the West is thus promoted as the solution to the future of the planet's existence. In order to understand much of the agenda of the environmental or green movement, it is necessary to first appreciate the essential worldview that informs the dire warnings and corresponding urgent measures to be implemented, heard repeatedly in our media and from prominent political figures. How, for example, are we to understand President Emeritus of the Worldwide Fund for Nature, Queen Elizabeth's consort, Prince Philip, and his statement that, quote, in the event that I am reincarnated, I would like to return as a deadly virus in order to contribute something to solve overpopulation. The Green Movement's myths of overpopulation and catastrophic man-made global warming are the outgrowth of a particular vision of reality. And so to understand its pervasive influence and power, we must first grasp its religious foundations. We must think about it this way. For all who deny the reality and word of the triune God of the Bible, there is a serious problem in facing the world. The problem of history or change. In the biblical perspective, God is the creator and governor of all things and as such has determined the meaning and purpose of all events, having ordained progress and development within history in terms of his kingdom. For scripture, the unchanging reality is not man, his ideas, nor anything in creation, but God himself, his being and his purposes. God's work and God's word from all eternity Established is the teleology of history, which has a beginning and an ordained conclusion in the plan and determination of his sovereign will. By contrast, in pagan or humanistic worldviews, nature, the universe of change or flux, is the basic reality with or without mind in dialectical tension with matter. In some pagan worldviews, change and movement in history are simply endlessly recurring cycles, making true progress and development theologically impossible, and all efforts at control ultimately pointless. The concept of history itself is rendered meaningless. But in the dominant humanistic perspective today, the universe and humanity itself is birthed or emanates from primeval flux and change into a world of chance where possibility and potentiality are for all intents and purposes infinite. Simply put, since there is no God distinct from creation, there is no supervening providence, no design plan for the universe, and so no ultimate purpose or meaning that precedes or defines the existence of anything. There is only change and possibility. Now, from the ancient world, especially in Plato, Neoplatonism, and their various intellectual offspring, a world of ideas is also posited where idea or mind becomes the permanent, the ideal, and the truly real over against the environment of change all around. Fast forward into the late 18th and early 19th centuries, we find the German philosopher Hegel, one of the most influential thinkers in forming the modern Western view of the state, teaching that the rational is the real. That is, the world spirit, idea or mind is ultimate and truly real and can be imposed upon the world of change as the state expresses itself as the divine idea on earth. Then in Marxism, which is deeply influenced by Hegel, the idea of man as his own creator through work can immediately change the world by revolution and the alteration of the human environment. The goal being the creation of a final and ultimate social order. Scripture is therefore abandoned in the modern world, giving way to a psychological and pragmatic understanding of reality, where man is the new God over the environment, planning and remaking his own destiny in terms of his idea of himself. Now, in this psychological universe devoid of God, some kind of order must be imposed upon a material world of brute facts, that is, events not pre-interpreted by God. This imposition can either be a purely existential perspective for the individual, where the freedom of the individual will is the will of God, and all other wills which resist mine must be that of Satan, as the existentialist Jean-Paul Sartre taught, or it will be a collectivist will, man's idea embodied in the state, expressing the freedom of necessity that must be imposed upon all men. Either way, definition, sovereignty, and law are denied to God and attributed to the human mind and will, whether that be individual or collective. Obviously, anarchy results from the social realization of existentialism, making it an unworkable philosophy for the social and governmental order of society. And so for the humanist and Pagan, a form of collectivism is the only alternative to an unworkable anarchic world. This is because man, seeing himself as a victim in a frightening world of unpredictability, must defend himself by exercising control over the world of change, by having his idea or mind govern it chaotic environment of change is seen as constantly threatening to crush man and so to escape ruin and death The process of time must have the idea of man imposed upon it to arrest history with its unpredictability, change and progress, and create out of the chaos a permanent and changeless order that ceases to threaten man's well-being. In humanism, since there is no predestination of God, remember, and no kingdom of God, in terms of which progress and change move, man must provide an alternative kingdom. That is to say, since the pagan mind has no unchanging God, the idea of man must become the substitute source of permanence, security, and predestination. Now it is also relevant to notice that in the ancient world much like today the humanistic cultural elite spoke often about the freedom of man embodied in the state whereas the early church spoke about the government kingdom and predestination of a personal god. Pagan thought requires a powerful and priestly state to save man from the environment all around him in terms of the planned order of the philosopher kings, the cultural elite, as witness Plato's Republic. So humanism spoke of freedom, but didn't really believe in it. Whereas the Christian church spoke of predestination and freedom in Christ under the personal and all wise government of God. The conclusions of paganism in this regard are at least thoroughly logical. Chance is just another word for impersonal determinism or fatalism. As we return full circle and our culture rehashes these ancient ideas in our time, the exhaustion and disillusionment of modern man amidst his futile social experimentation without God is becoming clearly manifest. Humanity has exhausted every avenue to return to paradise under its own strength, and so the same dead-end ideas are simply recycled in a new outfit to sound progressive. The dichotomy then is plain. Ultimately, man is either conditioned by the personal God of Scripture and his purposes or by nature, his environment, leading to the concept of fate. In the first instance, man as totally the creature of God is free to be what he is created to be. And as such is personally accountable to God. Freedom in this view is located in the fact that nothing around man can ultimately coerce him to be anything other than what he is, in terms of his choices as God's creature. In this context, salvation is not found in the changing of the human environment, but by the transformation of the man himself through the regenerating grace of God in Jesus Christ. In the latter case, man, as the victim of his impersonal environment, can only be saved by a planning and controlling agency, predestinating man's ideal order, which acts to transform his environment, thus manipulating the man and all social reality. Ultimate impersonalism therefore means the depersonalization of man. Because God is totally personal, not only is man being made in his image truly personal, but all things in all creation are a part of a personalized environment having personal significance. Just as everything in our homes is personal to us, each picture, piece of furniture, a child's toy, because it represents an event, decision, or moment in our lives as persons, So all things are personal relative to God as their creator, governor, and sustainer. There's no aspect of creation or history that is impersonal to God. Jesus Christ clearly assures us, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. By contrast, impersonal views of reality, that is all views outside a biblical world and life view, of necessity depersonalize man himself and all creation, finally destroying both freedom and ethics, good and evil. Since freedom is an aspect of the choices of persons and ethics concerns the personal morality, good and evil of those choices. There can be neither objective moral ethics nor true freedom in the cosmic impersonalism of humanism. As a result, in collectivist thinking, freedom and ethics steadily become irrelevant as control, planning and pragmatics logically take their place. The relevance of this worldview to the green movement now becomes, I hope, abundantly clear. History and change are the problem they are grappling with. Climates change. Populations change. Markets change. Life expectancies change. Consumption and resource levels change. This is perceived as a dire threat to existence by the humanist. The utopian illusion that informs today's environmentalist ideology as it has all socialistic utopian ideals, is that historical progress and development, which according to this worldview is nothing but impersonal change, must be halted, history arrested, and a perfect planned order ushered in, bringing about an ecological paradise of sustainability through the imposition of eco-justice on a global scale. Now, lest we think that sustainability simply means a godly and prudent use of resources with which Christians can readily agree, The dominant ideological definition is explained by Peter Wood. He writes that sustainability is a condition that arises when capitalism and hierarchy are abolished. Individuals are made to see themselves as citizens of the world, and a new order materializes on the basis of eco-friendliness, social justice, and new forms of economic distribution. In other words, the better world at which the green movement aims that is directly supported by the threats of catastrophic man-made global warming, overpopulation and imminent resource exhaustion is the establishment of a static world socialism. At a visit to Oxford University, Al Gore, perhaps the most prominent leader of the Green Movement today, to great applause, called for the increased concentration of power in the hands of an intelligentsia who would exercise dominion over the rest, declaring that the world needed a global martial plan. Only the totally planned society can restore man to harmony with nature, averting a dreadful death by progress and development. A sustainable history, one arrested by man's idea, thus requires such concepts as zero population growth, and zero economic growth to bring about human salvation and the promise of life. In such a view, historical progress, multiplied life, i.e. family, and development mean an impending apocalypse of death, whereas abortion, zero growth, and primitivism mean survival and salvation. In the great account of salvation and deliverance in the Old Testament known to history as the Exodus. The people of Israel are liberated from slavery by God himself through a display of divine power in the plagues upon Egypt, where the created order is turned against Pharaoh and used to bring devastation upon the life and economy of the nation. In the desert into which God takes the Hebrews. He gives to the people his covenant law at Mount Sinai. The covenant law is a covenant of life and therefore also death, blessing and cursing for obedience and disobedience. Central to the covenant are law and blood. Obedience to the law means life and blessing in the land and upon the land. Disobedience means curses, dispossession, famine and death. Only the blood of atonement can cover violations of God's law, for without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. The tablets onto which the covenant law is written are placed in a decorated container called the Ark of the Covenant on the lid of which is the mercy seat, where the atoning blood of clean animals is sprinkled. The ark is carried by God's people wherever they go and placed in the holiest place in the tabernacle. In the New Covenant era, through the exodus accomplished by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the living Torah, his blood being the only efficacious atoning blood, the location of the covenant law has changed. It has now been written into the hearts of God's people. Now, the Christian believer, having passed into the holiest place, is the ark and temple of God and bearer of God's covenant promises To all the nations. The Christian is the very vessel of the presence of God, or to use the apostle Paul's term, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Thus, God's kingdom manifesto, his charter for living in the world, is not only inscripturated in the Bible, but borne about by the members of the Church of Jesus Christ. Theological reality constitutes the biblical epic of the plan of salvation in Jesus Christ. But the environmental movement offers an imitation exodus and a different plan. Green liberation is a planetary deliverance in which man's universal law is declared by a multinational bureaucracy. International treaties are the binding covenant. The blood of the innocent unborn is shed as the new expiation to escape the wrath of Gaia. And plagues are promised if we resist the new charter for liberation. Now, some might suggest this is fanciful and a mere hyperbolic exaggeration. But the UN World Commission on Environment and Development first announced the need for an Earth Charter in 1987. And in 1992, at the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, then-UN Secretary-General Boutro Ghali promoted the creation of the Charter, the first draft being started two years later by Communist and former Soviet Premier, Mikhail Gorbachev, and Canadian billionaire, the Marxist Maurice Strong. Obviously for the United States, Canada, and other Western powers still influenced by Christianity, to embrace the Earth Charter would require cloaking pagan and neo-Marxist thought in euphemisms like sustainable global society, respect for nature, universal human rights, culture of peace, and economic justice. But as Dr. Calvin Beisner has pointed out, respect for nature means the resacralization of nature. Economic justice means redistribution of wealth to achieve economic equality. And culture of peace means rescinding a nation's right of self-defense in favor of protection from a global government with power to enforce. In our second part, we will explore the environmental movement further and discuss building a scriptural response.